Okay, so for tonight, what we're going to do is, uh, we talked about the possibility of doing this, so uh, we're going to try and uh, discuss um, Alanisim, the structure of Alanisim, and as you will see, it actually makes for an interesting thing. It's there on the screen? Got it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, as, uh, as you all know, so let me make it a little bit bigger, although we'll lose the bottom for now. But as you all know, so one of the ways by which we are able to uh, understand and more deeply appreciate uh, text is by being able to make a comparison and a contrast. So fortunately for us, we have uh, two Draban and Dika holidays, two Yom and Tovim, which were instituted by Chazal, one Purim and one Hanukkah. And uh, again, just to get make sure that we have the historical context over here. So Purim historically occurred first. Purim occurs between the first base of Mikdash and the second base of Mikdash uh, during that gap of time, as we know. And Chana takes place during the era of the second base of Mikdash. So chronologically, you have Purim, and then you have uh, and then you have Chanukah. And being that these are rabbinic uh, holidays, rabbinic Yom Tovim. So uh, the uh, Chazal decided they were going to incorporate uh, a, 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 an expression of appreciation or an expression of thanks, if we're going to remain consistent with the language of, uh, of Alanisim, which is put into the bracha of Hodav, thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So they uh, decided to add both of them into the Shmonasri, into the bracha of Modim, let's call it. So at the beginning of these two prayers, these two additional prayers of Alanisim, so they run similar, uh, similarly. So as you can see in the first row over here, so you have the historical context. So in Hanukkah we say, So we say it's in the time of Matisyahu. That's just giving us the historical context when the story takes place. And then you have on the Purim side, Habira. Okay, and those are the heroes of their, their respective stories. So, so far, they are the same thing, and they just, the only differences account for that they're different storylines with different heroes. Great. Then, in the next row, you have the intent of the enemy. So, here on Hanukkah, we say, <laughs> that when the uh, evil Greeks, the wicked Greeks, went ahead and stood up, against the Jewish people, and they wanted simply to make us forget the Torah and to cause us to violate Halacha. So that was what the enemies wanted to do to us in the Hanukkah story. And in the Purim story, it's a little bit longer, but it, it again, it's just going to capture what Haman was trying to do. So when Haman stood up against him, Bikesh, what he wanted to do was, borrowing from the language of the, of the Megillah, you want to destroy the entire Jewish people, old and young uh, children and women, on one day, on the 13th of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and he was going to go ahead and he was going to plunder all of their property. So again, different stories. So it's a different intent of the enemy, but the prayers so far are running consistent. And then in row three, it also seemingly runs a consistent pattern. So here is how Hashem responds to our enemies. So on Hanukkah we say, you in your great mercy, 
that you went ahead and you, just uh, very quickly, you went ahead and you fought their war and you judged them and you took revenge against these enemies. And part of how you did that is, mighty in the hands of the weak, many in the hands of the few. And now it's interesting just in and of itself, this isn't gonna be really related to our discussion, but then the next three contrasts are a little bit unusual because we say, until now we expected that the mighty and the numerous Greeks would be victorious by virtue of their greater might and their greater number. So it was miraculous that the few and the weak were actually victorious. But when you come to this idea of that the Greeks are Tame and we are Tahor, there's no real reason to believe that Tame people are any more equipped for battle than Tahor people. That just happens to be a spiritual description of the difference between them, but nothing to do with who we would go ahead and put money on to win the war. And similarly, sorry, the fact that the Greeks are Rishayim and the Jews are Tzadikim, also has nothing to do necessarily with the expectation of who's going to win the battle. And the third one is, that those who are mazed, those who are intentional sinners, intentional violators of God, versus those who are engaged in Torah study. Also, there's no reason to believe that one group is going to, should be victorious over the other group. But we include them anyways, and maybe in a different year, we'll go ahead and we'll explore this. But that's what we say. But the main thing is, is that row number three talks about how Hashem responded to the enemy and made sure that the enemy would not be successful at killing us. And the same thing we find in the Purim story. It says, that same exact opening phrase, in your abundance of mercy, uh, you went ahead and you disrupted his plan and you messed up his intent. And you went ahead and you, that's the Benahafahu, you took everything which he planned to do to the Jewish people and you flipped it over onto his own head. And you went ahead and you hung Haman as well as his children on a gallow. So again, three rows we have going over here, and there's an exact parallel between them. So far, so good, yeah? Okay, this is where things change. Because as you look, now on Hanukkah, we have another four rows to go, and on Purim, there is no parallel. On Purim, Alanisim is, is finished, and now we move on to Ve'al uh, We move on to the next uh, part of Shmonesre, and yet on Hanukkah, we have another four rows to go. So obviously, when you look at it from this perspective, you say, hmm, something unusual is going on. There's a significant contrast between the way we are capturing the Purim story in prayer and the way we are capturing the Hanukkah story in prayer. And when you see this, you say something is going on over here. We have to understand this a little bit more deeply. So what exactly do we add? So here we have, in row number five, we have the benefit for Hashem. So one thing which you did in the Hanukkah story is by saving the Jewish people, you created for yourself, for you, you made, a great and holy name in the world. 
So as opposed to the Chilul Hashem, as opposed to the desecration of Hashem's name, which arose when the Greeks took over and they went into the Beis Hamikdash and they violated, violated everything which was sacred, by you making sure that the Jews were victorious in this military battle, you once again restored your great name. So the Chil Hashem was over and there was a Kiddush Hashem which was made. And furthermore, the benefit for the Jewish people is that for the Jewish people, you provided them with this, this great salvation and redemption on this day, this day that we're celebrating now corresponding to that. So there is a benefit for God by saving us. There's a benefit for the Jewish people by saving us. And then we have, I forgot who that was on uh, whichever news program, but whatever it was, and now for the rest of the story. So on Hanukkah, we have this for the rest of the story, which we don't have on Purim, the Achar came. And after the military victory, so what's the follow-up from that? Your children enter, re-enter into the Beis HaMikdash. They clear out all of the schmutz and all of the stuff which the Greeks did to defile the Beis HaMikdash. And they once they went they went ahead and they restored the sanctity and the in uh, the purity of your mikdash of your base mikdash. And they lit the let's just say uh, over here the menorah in the base mikdash. So you'll take note, which all of the mafreshim take note of the fact that we don't mention the miracle of finding the flask of oil. That's not mentioned in Alanisim over here, but we do make mention of the fact that one of the things which they did, the significant things that they did, was they lit the menorah once again. And now the last thing is, and they went ahead and they established these eight days of Hanukkah as a yomtif. And what is the, uh, what are we trying to do on this yomtif? What's our focus on, the, uh, on this yomtif? That is, to give thanks and to give praise to your great name. So going back to what we said over in this row, the fact that this military victory increased the size of your name, created a Kiddush Hashem and a magnification of Hashem's name. So therefore, in, in response to that, in recognition of that, or in appreciation of that, or thanks of that, so we go ahead and we are going, we're going to give thanks, and we're going to give praise to that great name, which now exists. And that sort of brings around full circle what exactly was, the, was, uh, was accomplished with this, uh, this uh, miraculous event, and our response to that. Now, besides the fact that uh, we don't mention anything, anything similar to this in the Purim Al-Hanisim, but this last line is the one which would be the easiest to go ahead and replicate. Meaning that in the Purim side, in the Purim column, they should say, V'kavu Yom Purim Zeh, they established this day of Purim, L'mishto L'simcha as a celebration of a celebratory meal and simcha and joy, because that is the method by which we celebrate Purim, which is mishta v'simcha, by having a celebratory meal and trying to do things which is going to increase our joy and our happiness. And it would not have been a stretch at all to say, the kavu yom Purim zeh, 
And that would have been a simple parallel to go ahead and draw. And yet you see, it's noticeably absent on the Purim side. So all of this tells me, the absence of all of this tells me, uh, number one, uh, uh, not number one, what tells me that there's something which is going on, which is absolutely necessary to mention on the Hanukkah side, which is not necessary to mention necessarily on the Purim side. And that is what we're going to try and explore. And uh, there's a, uh, a long piece, uh, not a, such a long piece, but uh, Rav Hutner has um, about four and a half, five pages where he uh, asked this question, not as detailed as we did, but he takes note of the fact that on the Hanukkah side, we mentioned the establishment of the Yantiv and the method of celebration, which is Lahodos Ulahalel, whereas on the Purim side, we don't mention anything about the Mishnah Ulasimcha, that it's going to be for celebration, meaning a meal and for, uh, for happiness. Okay, so, he begins, uh, as he does, as you try and trace these things back as far as we possibly can historically. And he, he takes note of the idea that there's a concept called Maisa Avos Simulabanim. That what happened to our ancestors, what happened to Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, Sarifka Rachavalea, are always going to be uh, hints of what is going to unfold later on in Jewish history. So everything which happens, any, any historical event which takes place, like a Hanukkah story or a Purim story, there has to be, you have to be able to trace that back from that specific era all the way back in time to something which happens in, let's say, Sefer Bratius. There has to be some, there has to be some parallel in Sefer Bratius, which in a sense is the seed which was planted, which then sprouts and grows into the event which took place. So what's the Maisa Avos Simon Labanim? What is the event which happened in Sefer Bratius, which is the beginning of the Hanukkah story? So he says it was the battle of Yaakov and the and Esav's Malach. Like we read about uh, two weeks ago, I think, in the, in the Parsha, that Yaakov in Vayishlach, Yaakov is preparing his family to meet with Esav. He realizes that he forgets some jars on the other side of the river. He's got to go back. Anybody who's uh, driven through New York going over those bridges and whatnot knows what a pain it is to have to turn back around and go back to the other side of the bridge, pick something up, and then through the bridge, uh, over the bridge again. So Yaakov Avinu felt compelled to go ahead and retrieve those jars. And that battle is the Maisa of Osimilabanim, specifically for the way Chazal understand it, is Gzeras Shmad. Gzeras Shmad is the decree when Jews are, well, not Jews, when non-Jews, when our enemies are intent to convert us. So the, the, the battle that the Jews face when enemies are attempting to convert us, they're, they're attempting to deny our Kedusha, they're denying our sanctity and our special standing in this world, the hint to that, the, the historical event, which uh, is going to, uh, which uh, preceded all of that, is the battle of Yaakov with the Malach. And the reason why this is so, it's an interesting idea because Yaakov actually uh, fought against or had trouble with many different people over the course of his lifetime. He had difficulty with Esav, he had difficulty with Lavan, he had difficulty with Esav again. He had all sorts of difficulties over the course of his lifetime. So why is it that we're picking this specific event of the Mala, the battle he had with the Mala? 
So Rav Hutner explains, in the Pachad Yitzchak, he explains that, and he's talking about uh, from Rabbi Yisrael Salater, there's two different struggles that people are going to have in their Yiddishkeit. The two different struggles are, one he says is, ben hamidos v'hada'as, meaning that there's a tension which exists. My body seeks immediate gratification, that is the midos, and das, my mind, tells me, you know what, sometimes you have to look at the big picture of things, and pursuing your immediate gratification may not be in your best interest. And you have to temper that, or you have to restrain what feels good in the immediate sense of things for the bigger picture, what's going to be better for you now. So those of you who are uh, uh, have put aside money for retirement, so you know that that is the struggle. On the one hand, I'd like to be able to spend my money immediately. Maybe I could take that money, I could go to Shalots, and I could spend money on a good uh, dinner at Shalots or something like that. But on the other hand, if I restrain myself today from spending that extra money on shelves and I put it away, compounding interest hopefully means that by the time I retire, I'll have a larger nest egg, which will be able to take care of me. And I, will, uh, I won't have to worry about the finances when I, get to, when I get to that point. So that's a constant struggle, which we have. I want to be able to sleep late because sleeping late feels good. Seemingly it feels good. But on the other hand, I know that I have to get up and I have to daven. I have, I have to invest myself in davening and in learning and doing those things. So one struggle we have is the very simple struggle of, do I pursue my immediate gratification, what feels good in the moment? Or do I resist that, what feels good in the moment, for the long-term goal of something which is going to be in the future? And then he says, there's also the second struggle, Rabbi Saul says, the second struggle which we face is the struggle between Kedusha and Tuma. That there are some things which are going to be good, which are going to maintain my sanctity and my purity, and they elevate my soul. And then there are activities which are going to infuse Tuma defilement into my existence. And that second struggle of the, the struggle between Kedusha and Tuma, that's not a struggle which really exists on a physical plane, doesn't exist in the physical world, because the physical world doesn't recognize the existence of sanctity. Sanctity is already a spiritual thing. So if you're going to be a pure scientist of just what science is able to measure, is able to quantify, is able to weigh, is able to, uh, you know, to analyze in a lab, so that Kedusha and Tuma don't exist in a lab. They only exist in a spiritual perspective. So the, the, the struggle which we have, Kedusha and Tuma, doesn't exist in the physical world. It exists only in the spiritual world. And he says, Rafutner says, that the Hanukkah story, where the Greeks opposed our attachment to Torah and our connection to mitzvahs and our belief not only in the physical world, but our belief in Olam Haba, in a world to come, in the existence of Kedusha, in seeing, uh, recognizing, or appreciating the Kedusha and the sanctity of a Besamitish, in the holiness of a Besamitish, in saying that this location has sanctity, but other locations don't, all of that was intolerable as far as the Greeks are concerned. Because they only believed in what's measurable, what you could quantify, what you could weigh, what you could measure. You could do all of those things. And the reason why the Jewish people uh, bothered them so much, so much more so than the other nations which they sought to conquer, 
is because, specifically because the Jews said, there's more to this life than just our physical existence. There's more than just intellectualism. There's more than just brute force in power and might, Olympics and stuff of, of that sort. And when the Jews went ahead and said, there's more to the world because there's also a, a sanctity and a spirituality to the world. So this is something which they couldn't fathom. They couldn't understand. And it undermined their entire philosophy. And therefore, they specifically went after the Jews because the Jews represented a depth in the spirituality, which they denied that existence. So the fight that the Greeks had against the Jews was not the balance of immediate pleasure versus long-term smart thinking, but it was more that they were attempting to go ahead and to do away with anything which represented sanctity, anything which represented Kedusha and Tahara. So everything which they perceived as representing Kedusha and Tahara, so this is something which they would not tolerate and they actively opposed. So the, the, the battle which Yaakov had against Esau, let's say, that was a physical battle. Who's going to be the stronger of the two? That type of battle exists in the physical world. But the battle that Yaakov had against the Malach, that's not a fight which you could go ahead and you could quantify in physical terms, because how do you go ahead and you fight a spiritual being? What exactly is the methodology of that battle of a human fighting against a spiritual being, a, spirit, a spiritual malach? Since that doesn't exist in the physical world, so that's why this Shema, this attempt to convert the Jewish people and to deny Kedush and Tahara, that's why it was such a, a dangerous thing. And that's why these two historical events are going to go together with one another because they, they share that, uh, that common theme. And he says, what's interesting is, is that we know that when the, the intent of our enemy is to convert us, they're not trying to annihilate us. Uh, Haman just wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. He didn't give a hoot about one religion or another. All he wanted to do was just, he, he was just a pure anti-Semite, similar to uh, more recent, uh, in more recent history, like Hitler. Yimach Shemo, that he just wanted to kill Jews. It, it, he, he had no philosophy about it. He had no uh, uh, w- different way of looking at the world. He just knew that he hated Jews. Jews bothered him, and he's going to annihilate an attempt to go ahead and kill out the entire Jewish people. That was Haman. Haman did not have much of a philosophy to him. He was just a straight-up anti-Semite. The Greeks were very different. And in the time that our enemies are trying to convert us, so for those of you who remember, from the Gemaras in Sanhedrin, which talks about Shas Hashmad. So then one has to be willing to be Moser Nefesh, even for the most minor infractions. The example that the Gemara gives is, even if the Jews wear a particular color shoelace and the non-Jews wear a different color shoelace, and a person comes to you, an enemy comes to you during this time of Shas Hashmad, during this Greek time, and puts a gun to your head and says, either you put on the Gaiyasha colored shoelace, or we're going to kill you, you have to be willing to be killed. Now, the color shoelace is not a mitzvah. It's not in the Torah at all. It's just a practice by which the Jewish people are identified by convention, by practice, by that just happens to be what's, a, what, what's done. But once they go ahead and they're trying to convert us and they're trying to deny our, our place as B'nai Yisrael, as a Jewish people, so we have to give up our lives rather than deny our existence as a Jewish people. And therefore, this is something which is unique to Shas Hashmad, which is unique to this particular uh, 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 storyline of, uh, of the Hanukkah story. 
where their focus was to deny Kedushan Tahara of the Jewish people, and therefore in defense of being the Jewish people, we're not going to compromise on anything whatsoever. We're not going to allow them to dictate us what to do, even something as minor as potentially the, the color of our shoelaces. Now, uh, then Rafutna goes along and he says that you find an interesting uh, um, uh, Lushan Kodesh phenomenon. And that is that uh, you have, I often talk about how there's no true synonyms in Lushan Kodesh. That whenever you have two words which seemingly mean the same thing, there will always be some slight nuanced difference between them. So that's that, that's something which is which is important to be to be mindful of. That every word is going to have a unique and specific translation, and you will never have two true synonyms. But sometimes what you have is you have one word which could be used for different ideas, and he points out that the word hoda. Uh, we'll just take it over here. This word on the screen over there, hopefully it says lahodos. So that word hoda actually has two different meanings to them, depending on the context. What are those two different meanings? He says, one is an expression of thanks. He puts in Yiddish, Duncan. So when you say Duncan, so you're saying thank you. So that's one meaning of the word hoda. And then there's another one, which is where you admit to another person. Right, Chazal used the phrase hodas baldin, that the admission of a litigant in court is going to have great halachic weight, halachic significance to it. So the word hoda simultaneously means thanks and it means admission. Now that also is an interesting phenomenon that you would have one word, here it's not two words which mean the same thing, here it's the opposite, it's one word which means two different things. But that also can actually happen. You can't have one word which means two different things. Obviously, those two different things are two different branches. But if you follow those branches to the root, you'll realize that the concept is the same. So in what way is an admission and thanks mean the same thing? So he writes, and I, I like the way he phrases this. So I'd like to read it to you. He says, Because in the makeup of every person's existence, every person's mindset, every person's personality. So every person has uh, uh, embedded in their personality a yearning to be independent, to be self-sufficient, to be able to take care of things all by yourself. We know this from the joke. It doesn't apply anymore now that everybody has a GPS on their phone. But the old joke about uh, you know asking your husband to you know to pull into a gas station and ask for driving directions and he'll never do so. So that idea of not wanting to ask for directions is I can figure out where to go on my own. I can take care of this myself. I don't need to go ahead and, uh, and need anybody else's assistance. And that is this idea that Rafutner is explaining is the sheifa, the yearning which we have leo smuchal shukan atzma to be completely independent and self-sufficient, without having to rely on anybody else's assistance. And that's the pride. Nobody wants to take tzedakah. Nobody wants to take a handout. Nobody wants somebody else to have to do them a favor. People, by and large, want to be able to take care of themselves and do things on their own. And therefore, he says, and therefore, any time you're going to express your appreciation 
for something that somebody did for you, and you're going to say thank you. So what's inclu- what's embedded in every thank you? There's an admission which is taking place at that moment. What admission is included in every expression of thanks? Because this time I was not able to be self-sufficient. I was not able to take care of myself and I needed your assistance. And I had to go ahead and rely on your kindness and the goodness of your heart. So every time a person says, thank you, thank you very much for the ride, thank you very much for the card, thank you very much for whatever it happens to be, thank you very much for, for that, uh, that, that kind word, what you're also, in, in addition to the thanks, is an admission that somebody provided you with something that you couldn't provide for yourself, or you were providing for yourself. So every thanks is going is going to contain is going to contain that, that that idea. What's the significance of that? So now he says a very beautiful thing. You know, I'm going actually going to pull it up uh, if I can quickly. Um, does it say Hebrew, HebrewBooks.org on the screen? No, it hasn't changed. Okay, hold on. I'll pull it up in a second. Bye. It, po- it popped up that they wanted to know if I wanted to give them money today. <laughs> it's Giving Tuesday. Okay, here we go. So now, so here you have, this is the bracha of Modim, right? So Alanisim finds itself in Modim. So here he says, so now we know that the, the word Hoda or Modim, like it says over here, could have two different meanings. It could either be an expression of thanks or it could be an admission. So now this is where we get a little bit technical. He says that when you go ahead and you're giving thanks to somebody, so it's going to be a, um, right? When you're giving thanks, the word which is going to follow is al, thank you for giving me this. So you would expect to see the word al when you're expressing things. When it's an admission, you're admitting that so then the, the letter, the prefix, which is going to follow after in admission, is the letter shin. She, because. So here we say, modim anachnu lach. So here we open up and we say, modim anachnu lach, sho'ata. It's a kamatz under the, the shin, not a, a segel. Sho'ata, hu Hashem al-kenu v'kenu So what is this? We're not thanking Hashem that you are a God. We're admitting, it's an admission that you are our God. So here, where the modem is, here it says thankful, but Rafutner says that that would not be the correct. It's really an admission that. Sho'atahu. We are admitting that you are Hashem. Right? So we're admitting that you are the rock of our existence. You are the shield of our salvation for generation and generation. So that's an admission. And therefore, the key which follows after that, the key identifier is the shin of the word sho'ata. Then, interesting, it goes on, it says, nodelacha. Nodelacha is the same shorish as modim. But here, as we're going to see, it means thanks. How do we know it means thanks? Because follow the phrase, nodelacha, we give thanks to you. Unesabritil we're going to recount your praises. 
al. Ding, 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 ding. So there is the word al. So when you have the word al, which follows after any form of the word modim or no delacha, that is, that is thanks for something which is being provided. He says al is really avur, for those Hebrew speakers out there, but it's thanks avur on account of this. So we have these two different phrases in modim itself. One is an admission, and the other is going to be an expression of, uh, of thanks. And that's how we're going to be able to tell the difference uh, b- between them. So now, uh, with that in mind, so now we can, uh, knowing that that is the case, so now we can go back and we say that, um, he, he writes, Rafutna writes, I'll read it again, just because the, beautiful, the, the, the language is very beautiful. He says, Now, with the understanding that, with this uh, introduction, all this was introduction, <laughs> introduction to the answer. So he says, now that we've reached this place, the idea of thanksgiving or admission, we don't find, he mentions, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon this in, in a bit uh, later on, but he says that we find unique to the Yantif of Chanukah, this idea of Hoda'ah, right? Do you find Hoda'ah, uh, an expression of thanks by the Pesach Seder? Pesach Seder has Hallel, but we don't find Hoda'ah. There isn't a specific section of, of Hallel, of, of the Pesach Seder, which has Hoda'ah to it. We don't find on, on, on Shavuos, when we got the Torah, there's no Hoda'ah, thanksgiving, for HaKadosh Baruch Hu having given us the uh, the uh, the Torah. We don't find on Hanukkah this expression of thanksgiving for having provided us with shelter for the 40 years that we were traveling in, in the Midbar. Hoda is something which is unique to Hanukkah. Why is Hoda something which is unique to Hanukkah? If all it is is thanksgiving, so there are plenty of times on the Jewish calendar which would seemingly be appropriate for thanksgiving to God. So what is unique about this Thanksgiving? If, it, if, it just, if it's just a matter of saying thank you to Hashem for this miracle and thank you for this salvation and thank you for taking care of us when we traveled for the 40 years in the wilderness. So Hodah should be a much more common theme that we would touch upon every time a Yantif comes in and out. We should be saying thanks to Hashem for whatever that, the theme of that Yantif is. And yet it's something which is unique to Hanukkah. Why is it unique to Hanukkah? So he says... Says, when did Klai Yisrael get the name Yisrael? Sorry, when did Yaakov get the name Yisrael? He got the name Yisrael after he did battle with Esav's Malach. The first time that there was a battle between the physical and the spiritual. That's the Kedusha versus Tuma, the Tahara versus Tuma. That's a type of battle which doesn't exist in this physical world. So the first time Yaakov went ahead and had a spiritual battle, human against angel, against a spiritual being, and Yaakov was victorious as the, the, the Malach is trying to defile Yaakov and deny him his Kedusha and his Tahara, and Yaakov was victorious, he acquired the name Yisrael. And as we said, in different times in Jewish history, enemies will come along and they will also try and not simply conquer the land of Israel, 
and throw us out because they want the land because it's a strategic location over there in between three continents. And it's not simply a, a, an enemy who just has anti-Semitic leanings or anti-Semitic intent. And therefore he just wants to kill Jews because he can't stand Jews, nothing to do with their, their practice of religion. He just hates Jews. But here the Hanukkah story is unique because this was a battle of Tahara versus Tuma. We believe in the sanctity, in, in the existence of sanctity. We believe in the existence of Tahara, of purity, of spiritual purity. And the Greeks deny the existence of that at all. So this is the first time in history that there was a Shas Hashemad, that there was an intent by our enemy to go ahead, not to kill us per se, but to convert us so that we should not believe in the sanctity of things. And therefore, at this time that we are victorious of the Greeks, we remind ourselves of what happens when we are victorious over those spiritual forces which are trying to deny our access to Kedushan Tahara. And he says, what happened when Yaakov was victorious over the Malach? Remember, Esav's uh, opposition, what, what, what infuriated Esav beyond what he could handle inside of his own head was the fact that Yaakov stole his brachos. How dare you take those brachos? Our father intended those brachos to go to me, not to go to you. And you went ahead and you stepped in, you stole my brachos. Now, Chazal tells us that when Yaakov was victorious over that angel, over Esav's angel, and he said, I'm not going to be able to defeat you. The most he could do is he could wound him a little bit. When he realized that he's not going to be able to defeat him, Esav was forced to acknowledge, yes, Yaakov, you are the one deserving of those brachos. You are, by giving the name Yisrael at that time, that it was not only, it wasn't a thanks, it wasn't a hoda in the sense of thanks, it was a modesheh. It was an admission that you are the one who's deserving of those brachos. And that was the hodah that the Malach of, uh, of Esav gave to Yaakov by changing his name from Yaakov to Yisrael, that your name Yisrael is earned by virtue of the victory of Tahara over Tuma. And the first time, first battle that took place was Yaakov and the Malach. And the second time in history that that takes place is the Yantif of Hanukkah. And this is the first enemy that we face who wanted to not kill us as a nation, but to convert us. They don't mind if we exist. They don't mind if we remain in Eretz Yisrael. They didn't throw us out of Eretz Yisrael, as we've talked about over the years. And they didn't even mind if the Beis Hamikdash continues to stand. They didn't destroy the Beis Hamikdash. They were victorious over us. They left us in our land and they left the Beis Hamikdash standing. And they even allowed sacrifices to take place in the Beis Hamikdash just not Kedusha sacrifices. If you could offer a, a lamb or, or, or a goat or a bull, why not offer a pig? So as far as they're concerned, a sacrifice is a sacrifice. And if you want to go ahead and you want to sacrifice your heart's content, go for it. As long as you don't believe in Kedusha, as long as you don't believe in Tahara, as long as you don't have those things. So they don't mind if we do all superficially, if we remain culturally Jewish. And culturally Jewish is your language, it, we also value the Torah, the Greeks said. You know what, we value your Torah so much, we're gonna translate it into Greek so we could also study your Torah. So they didn't oppose anything which was culturally Jewish, but they, what they could not stand is anything which would be spiritually Jewish. And that was their opposition. But when at the end of the story, we're victorious over them, 
We're not simply giving thanks to Hashem for the fact that we are victorious over them. The thanks which we have at that time is going to be is going to be a lahodos. It's also going to be an admission. The admission on the part of the Malach of Esau and an admission on the part of the Greeks that yes, you Jews do deserve the brachas. You do have access to sanctity, to holiness, and to spirituality, which we do not have. And therefore, that is this unique element of, uh, of, of Hodah on Hanukkah. It's not simply Hodah in the sense of Thanksgiving, but it's also Hodah, a recognition and an admission of the sanctity of the Jewish people and the special place that the Jewish people have in, in this world. And he says, I'll read uh, this, uh, this last line there to you. He says, even though the primary focus and thrust of this is, is obviously it's an expression of thanksgiving for the miracle and the salvation. Nonetheless, there's something which is deeper within that because again, that word contains these two different concepts. So he says, at the root of this hoda, of this thanks or slash thanksgiving, there also contains an admission on the part of the Greeks that we actually do, we are a sacred uh, and special people. Because by the Jews willing to give up their lives rather than convert to another religion, that's what forces the Malach of Yisrael. that they have no choice but to acknowledge the power and the sanctity of the Jewish people. So the Lahodos isn't simply a thanksgiving, but it's also the admission of the sanctity and the holiness and the, the specialness of the, uh, of the Jewish people. And that's uh, something which is, uh, that's why over here, we have this additional thing about uh, all, these, uh, all these lines, and it takes a little bit of a stretch to, uh, to fit them all in, but all of this additional thing is because of this added element of thanksgiving and acknowledgement and admission on the part of the enemy of our special place, which didn't apply. Haman didn't admit to anything after he was defeated. He was simply defeated. So there's no admission on his part that we are a special people. They just lost the battle. So, so you win some, you lose some. This one they, uh, they lost. And therefore, there was nothing to admit to afterwards other than the fact that the Jews were more powerful than, uh, than them. And let me conclude with one uh, thought, which uh, uh, got from a, a, a friend of mine here in, in town, which I think is a, which is a very, it's a very important uh, idea. And that is, is that he was, uh, this, uh, he was discussing with a, a world famous um, physicist about uh, religion and about Judaism, whatever it happened to be. And this person said that, uh, that science went ahead and introduced the idea of human dignity. Human dignity was something which came out of the Renaissance, wherever, they, uh, wherever you wanted to put it historically. So this person said that it's an interesting thing that you would say that because the origin of the Olympics we know is from the Greeks, right? Every time when we, so when we have an Olympic games, so we're celebrating the physical prowess or the physical greatness of these uh, Olympic caliber athletes. What's interesting is, is uh, nowadays, at the same time that we have the regular Olympics, there's a special Olympics. 
Special Olympics, we know, are for the people with various handicaps or various uh, um, whatever challenges which, uh, which they have. So did the Greeks themselves, did they have Special Olympics? Obviously, they didn't. We know that they didn't. Why didn't they have Special Olympics? Because if a child was born handicapped, they just killed the child. You wouldn't, they didn't have potential athletes to compete in the Special Olympics because they believe that and since the greatness, since, uh, since uh, you have to establish your credibility or you have to assert your human dignity. So the only way from the Greek perspective that a person is going to establish human dignity is either intellectual achievement or physical achievement. So you have one of two options to go ahead and to be able to prove your worthiness in this world. And if somebody was born without the capacity to be able to demonstrate a, a, a greatness or competence, either in the intellectual realm or in the physical realm, that person had no inherent value to them. So this friend of mine was said to this physicist, that's interesting that you think that science introduces because there is no, there is no uh, measure in science of human dignity. Human dignity doesn't exist in a scientific world because all you are is just a collection of cells or whatever they are. And why are you allowed to eat a plant or you're allowed to eat an animal? You're not allowed to eat a human. What makes a human from a scientific perspective, what makes a human more special or more worthy of something of dignity than an animal or a plant or a rock or a piece of dirt? In science, there's no difference between them. So he said he found it to be such a fascinating thing that this person thought that science introduced human dignity. Science actually does not believe in human dignity. The inalienable rights, which we talk about in the Constitution, and the, or the, uh, the, uh, the human dignity, which we think every person is deserving of, that comes from a single source, which is the fact that mankind, the Bible says, the Torah says, mankind was created by Tzalem Elohim. If mankind is Tzalem Elohim, that gives inherent value to our existence. Animals are not Tzalem Elohim. Plants are not Tzalem Elohim. Inanimate objects are not Tzalem Elohim. Only humans are Tzalem Elohim. So human dignity is a religious concept. It cannot be a scientific concept because in science, there's no such, there's no such thing. There's nothing which is going to differentiate a human over anything else which, which exists. On top of the fact that we are just this small little speck of a speck of existence in the, in, the, in the vast universe. And there's no reason that my collection of cells is any more valuable than anything else which exists in, 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 the, in the universe. But this is something that the Greeks deny. One of the things that you have to be appreciative of is the fact that the concept of human dignity is something which is, is a spiritual concept which traces itself back to that Pasuk in the Torah, which says that mankind was created with Salem Elohim, and the Greeks who deny anything which is spiritual don't believe in human dignity, don't believe in an inalienable right, or that, the, uh, that every person who exists by virtue of their existence has human dignity and is deserving of kavad abrius, kavad adam, all, 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 all of that terminology. That's also, I think, an important uh, element of this, uh, of this discussion and what we're trying to celebrate and what we're trying to appreciate is the idea that anything which is going to be spiritual, even the sense of human dignity, is something which is going to be some, uh, derived from the Torah. And it's not something from a pure intellectual, pure philosophical or scientific perspective, you would be able to go ahead and uh, establish and assert. And that is my thoughts for Hanukkah. Based on the uh, the Al Nisim, and 
Uh, any questions, I'll be 